0: Due to the nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of kidnapping and pregnancy loss. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Imagine you just had a baby, and you're head over heels in love with your child. A few weeks after the birth, your new arrival gets sick, so you find yourself back at the hospital. A nurse greets you at the door. She wraps your baby in her arms, then walks away. You sit in the waiting room and watch the clock. It ticks and ticks and ticks. The nurse doesn't come back. You're worried, so you ask around, describing the woman to other hospital staff. They say they don't recognize her. No one matching that description works at the facility. Turns out that woman wasn't a nurse at all. She impersonated one so you'd let your guard down and you just handed your child over to a kidnapper. You're panicked, angry, desperate. You have to do something to find your baby. After all, it's not like you'd expect a kidnapped child to find their way home on their own. But in this story... That's exactly what happens. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary, to arson, to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long-dormant cases. Others, we'll still be left searching for the truth. Today, we'll meet a woman who has to grapple with a common question, Who am I? under very uncommon circumstances. After being raised by a single mom her entire life, she realizes she was kidnapped as an infant and her biological family has been searching for her for over 20 years.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: In this show, we've talked about a lot of crimes that were solved after years of effort. We've profiled tireless police officers and dedicated friends and family members who advocated for their loved ones. But now, we're going to meet a young woman who didn't have any of that. With little more than her suspicions and a computer, she solved her own kidnapping. will start around the fall of 2004, when 17-year-old Nedra Nance, or Nettie as her friends call her, realizes she's pregnant. This could be bittersweet news for any teen, especially when the child's father isn't in the picture, as is the case for Nettie, but she takes the news in stride. More than that, she's excited about it. There's some biological factors that might be helping that feeling, Evidence shows mothers often begin bonding with their baby before they're born. During pregnancy, the physical structures of mothers' brains actually change. They become more focused on caring for their future child. So even though Nettie hasn't met her baby yet, she might already love them or feel a need to protect them at all costs. Plus, she has a big support network, her large extended family in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Right now, she lives with her mom, and Petway. But for a big chunk of her childhood, she stayed with her grandmother, Mary. She's developed a close relationship with her aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents. She's especially tight with her aunt, Cassandra, who she calls her bestie. There's just one problem. Nettie can't afford the baby on her own. She doesn't have health insurance. She does qualify for public assistance and free prenatal care. But to claim the benefits, she needs to fill out paperwork and show a birth certificate. Nettie asks her mom, Anne, where to find the document. And Anne doesn't give her a straight answer. She just says she'll deal with it. But Anne doesn't deal with it. She keeps putting it off. Eventually, Nettie gets impatient and searches through Anne's things. That's when she uncovers a piece of paper listing her name and birth date. It looks a bit like a birth certificate. So Nettie takes it to the Bureau of Vital Statistics at New Haven. This is the government office that maintains the town's records on births, deaths, marriages, anything Nettie might need to prove her identity. But the clerk there claims there's no record of her birth. As for the documents she brought in, it appears to be forged. An employee implies Nettie might be attempting identity theft. Of course, Nettie isn't trying to steal anyone's identity— She's not doing anything wrong. She just wants the financial support she's entitled to. But since looking through her records got her nowhere and the vital statistics office isn't helping, she decides to go back to the source, her mom. Now, Nettie and Ann currently live together, but they have a somewhat distant relationship. Like I mentioned before, Nettie spent a lot of her childhood living with her grandmother, Mary. She believes this was because Mary's home is in a better school district. But Anne was also arrested multiple times for charges ranging from drug possession to forgery to attempted embezzlement. She sent her daughter away while she dealt with her legal problems. Nettie doesn't know all this. She just sees her mother as withdrawn and strict, but she also knows Anne has worked hard to provide for her, so there's a level of respect and gratitude there. Nevertheless, Nettie soon asks Anne point-blank why she doesn't seem to have a birth certificate. Anne evades the question. She just says, quote, I told you I was going to handle everything. Then, a few days later, Anne drops a bombshell. As soon as she gets home from work, Anne trudges upstairs and steps into Nettie's room. She sits on her daughter's bed, tears streaming down her cheeks. Anne explains that she doesn't have Nettie's birth certificate because she's not Nettie's birth mom. She adopted her in secret. Nettie's biological mother had a substance use disorder and abandoned her. As you might imagine, Nettie has a lot of questions. Like, who is her biological mother? How did Anne know her? Where's her bio mom now? But when she asks these questions... Anne shuts the conversation down. To Nettie, it's also suspicious. Anne can't give her any proof, which could be because the adoption was supposedly secret, but it could also be because she's lying. After all, if she was telling the truth, why not answer Nettie's questions? Clearly, Anne isn't coming totally clean, and the more Nettie thinks about it, the more worried she gets. Her mind goes to the worst case scenario. Maybe Anne's being so evasive because she's hiding something darker.
1: For hundreds of years, we have looked to scientists to explain how the world around us works. But what happens when science doesn't have the answer? Every week on the podcast Unexplained Mysteries, we take a deep dive into paranormal activities, natural phenomena, and suspicious deaths to try to grasp how and why mysterious events occur. Some things need no explanation. Others are a complete mystery. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Unexplained Mysteries. Listen free only on Spotify.
0: Nettie Nance doesn't totally buy her mom's story about a secret adoption. But even if Anne is lying, Nettie can't really do anything about it. At least, not at the moment. She has no proof. Plus, she's busy finishing her last year of high school and preparing for the birth of her child. So she turns her attention to her classes. Nettie graduates in 2005 and gives birth to her daughter, Samani, that May. After this, she settles into her new normal. She gets a job at a motel, and around Samani's first birthday, she moves out of Anne's home. She gets busy with regular day-to-day stuff, work and childcare and her new place, but there's a dark cloud of suspicion looming over everything she does. In her mind, there are really only two options, Anne is telling the truth, which would mean Nettie's birth mom willingly gave her to Anne, or Anne is lying, which would mean she got Nettie another way, like maybe by force. It might sound bizarre, but Nettie has been considering a terrifying question. What if I was kidnapped? Nettie spends a lot of time online, scouring missing persons reports and birth records. She's looking for dark skinned babies born around 1987 in Connecticut. Anyone who could be her. She calls or emails various groups and organizations that advocate for missing people and kidnapping victims, but no one can give her any meaningful help. Nettie has so little information about who she is or where she came from, it's basically a non starter. Years pass, but Nettie's curiosity and suspicion don't die down. She's still searching for information about her past when she moves to the Atlanta, Georgia area in 2009. By 2010, it's been five years since Anne told Nettie she was adopted, and Nettie still hasn't found any answers about where she comes from. But her investigation does get a lead. See, one of the main reasons Nettie moved to Atlanta is because her aunt and bestie, Cassandra, lives there. And one day, Nettie finally opens up to Cassandra. I don't know if Nettie explicitly says she thinks she was abducted, but she does tell her aunt about Anne's secret adoption story. But Cassandra remembers Anne saying she was pregnant back in 1987 and told everyone she was going to have a baby. Then she left town and didn't come back until after Nettie was born. Nobody was actually present during the supposed birth. Cassandra just remembers her older sister climbing off a train with a baby in her arms. But now that she thinks about it, That doesn't mean it was Anne's baby. According to Nettie, her aunt never considered that Nettie wasn't Anne's biological daughter before this conversation, but it does make an odd sort of sense. In the past, a few family members gossiped about how Nettie doesn't really look like Anne. Cassandra doesn't just ask Anne about this herself it's hard to know how close the sisters are and in any case it could be a really awkward conversation but cassandra understands that her niece needs answers so she encourages nettie not to give up answers are out there and she's willing to help nettie find them a light bulb moment comes when nettie discovers the nicmec or national center for missing and exploited children They have a website with a massive database. About a third of all missing people are minors, so there are hundreds of thousands of missing children profiles on this site alone. There's also an archive where you can look at photos and artist renderings of missing kids from all over the nation. When Nettie sees the scope of this site, she realizes she's made a crucial mistake. Up until this point, her search efforts have been focused in Connecticut, where she grew up, but now she's realizing she could be from anywhere. So Nettie resumes her search, this time looking nationwide. She reviews the photos of babies in the NickMex archive, and one result stops her cold. A girl named Carlina White was abducted from a hospital in Harlem, New York, in 1987 when she was only 20 days old. She's dark-skinned, like Nettie, and she looks so much like Samani, Nettie's daughter, who everyone says resembles her as a baby. As Nettie stares at the picture of baby Carlina, She's struck by this feeling of hope and longing. Is she looking at a photo of herself? For years, she's nursed suspicions without making any headway. The thought that she might have just solved her life's biggest mystery has to be a huge thing to grapple with. She downloads the photo to her computer, then takes some time to mull over what she's found. It takes a little while, but eventually, Nettie shows the picture to her aunt, Cassandra, who agrees the baby looks an awful lot like her. That December 2010, Nettie calls the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's hotline and tells them she thinks she was kidnapped as a baby. An employee listens as Nettie voices her fears. She doesn't mention her eerie resemblance to Carlina White's photo, but tells them everything else her lack of a birth certificate, and story about her biological mother abandoning her, her fear that she might have another set of parents out there, parents who are worried and looking for her. Another Nick Mech employee later says Nettie sounds agitated almost desperate. She's so emotional, she can't answer all of the center's questions. Nettie puts Cassandra on the line at one point. Together, they try to give the NCMEC all the info they need to move forward. It's tough because Nettie doesn't know a lot of basic things about herself. She assumes she's black, but she can't say for sure. It's possible her birth parents are another race. She doesn't even know her real birthday. So Nettie describes herself as best she can, making special note of a birthmark on her right arm. This helps the center to identify two missing persons cases that could be a match. One is Carlina White. Turns out... Carlina has a birthmark in the exact same place as Nettie. The center is so confident, they contact Carlina's birth parents, Joy White and Carl Tyson, around New Year's Day. They say they think they found their daughter. This is the news that Joy and Carl have been waiting for, for a long, long time. 23 years. All the way back on August 3rd, 1987, Carlina White was just 19 days old. She developed a 103 degree temperature that didn't go down for hours. Her mother, Joy, was 16 years old and overwhelmed. She tried everything she could think of to help, but nothing worked. By the evening, the fever was still raging. As night descended joy and carl decided they had no choice but to take their baby to the hospital as soon as they arrived at the harlem hospital center a woman greeted them carl and joy assumed she was a nurse because of her outfit she was a heavyset black woman in a white uniform with a blue or green smock over it and could have been in her 20s or 30s she didn't have a name tag but she seemed like she knew what she was doing She told Carl and Joy where to check in. They were too concerned with their daughter to give the woman much thought. After all, Carlina was extremely sick. The doctors ran countless tests and put her on an antibiotic drip. Her illness had the potential to turn deadly without treatment. Doctors said they'd like to keep Carlina overnight for observation. Carl and Joy intended to stay at their child's side all night... But at one point, the same nurse from earlier pulled Joy aside and urged her to stop crying and worrying so much. It was a confusing statement, but Carl and Joy had other things on their mind. Plus, it was late. They couldn't do anything but sit and worry. They'd also left some of Carlina's things at home in their rush to get her treatment. So, in spite of their reservations, They left early on the morning of August 4th. Before they headed out, hospital staff promised they'd check on Carlina every five minutes. She'd never be alone longer than that. The doctors and nurses kept their word. Everything was normal until around 3.30 a.m. when a staffer went into Carlina's room to check on her and the baby was gone. They were completely shocked. Carlina was never unattended for more than five or 10 minutes at a time. Someone must have studied the nurses' schedules. That would explain how they knew exactly when they'd have an opportunity to disconnect Carlina's IVs and monitors, then walk out with her. Hospital staff contacted the police immediately. Detectives and police dogs scoured the crime scene it didn't take long to identify a suspect. That nurse who greeted Carl and Joy, the one who didn't have a name tag. She was not an employee of the hospital. No one knew who she was or why she was there. After quickly ruling out one other suspect, the police didn't have any credible theories about the nurse's identity or what happened to the baby. A year passed without a break and Carl and Joy had to grapple with this unimaginable grief. Carl suffered from unsettling dreams where his baby girl was back, laughing and smiling in the nursery. It was a wonderful fantasy until he woke up to a real-life nightmare of uncertainty and loss. Joy held onto a purple stroller that Carlina only got to use once. She couldn't even set foot in Carlina's room, the memories and emotions were too much. By Carlina's first birthday, Joy's mom disassembled the crib and gave away the baby clothes. It was better to be rid of the painful reminders, even if they were all that Carl and Joy had of their daughter. Now, 23 years later, if the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is right, Carl and Joy might finally be reunited with their baby girl. Joy, Carl, and Nettie all consent to a DNA test, but they're too excited to wait for the results. They get one another's information, and over the course of two weeks in early January, Nettie, Carl, and Joy talk on the phone every day. On January 15th, 2011, Nettie and five-year-old Samani fly to New York, even though Nettie still hasn't heard whether Joy and Carl are really her birth parents. As soon as she gets to Joy's home, she sits down to a big dinner with her possible extended family, siblings, aunts, and a grandmother. Everyone talks about how much Nettie looks like Joy and Carl She has Carl's eyes. She uses the same gestures as other relatives. Nettie just feels like she fits in here. And she's not the only one who's overwhelmed by the sense of completeness. For Carl and Joy, too, it seems like their family has finally been put back together. Then, on the 18th, the DNA results come in. And it's a match. Nettie Nance is Carlina White. Now, I could end the episode here with the implication that Nettie, Joy, and Carl live happily ever after. But life is rarely that simple. Soon after they get the test results, a rift starts to grow between Nettie and her birth parents. It seems like Carl, in particular, wants to develop a close relationship with his daughter right away, but Nettie still sees him as a stranger. They've lived apart for 23 years, and the results of a DNA test don't change that. Nettie has a whole different life in Atlanta, but her biological parents want her to spend more time with them in New York. To make matters worse, after her identity is confirmed, Nettie becomes an overnight celebrity. She flies Simani home, then returns to New York alone for a round of interviews with the press. During this trip, journalists camp outside the hotel where she's staying. Some even book rooms on her floor so they can track her every movement through the building. It's no better when she goes back to Atlanta, She doesn't feel comfortable staying in her own house because reporters keep hounding her there. She relocates to a hotel just to escape all the attention, but that doesn't stop the constant phone calls from the press. Nettie has to change her number just to get a moment's peace. It's all too much to deal with. Nettie withdraws from the public eye and from Joy and Carl. It seems like just as they're reunited, the family fractures. It probably doesn't help that Anne Petway is also becoming famous. She surrenders herself to the FBI about five days after DNA confirms Nettie's identity. News of her charge, one count of kidnapping, makes the TV news. And it seems like Nettie has mixed feelings about the arrest. At one point, she had told the press she hoped Anne would be captured. But now that Anne's in custody, Nettie admits she's never stopped loving the woman who raised her. As she explains to the radio station V-103 Atlanta, Nettie doesn't believe in punishment, not even for Anne. Nettie's too hurt and angry to speak to her, but that doesn't mean she wants Anne to end up behind bars. To complicate things even more, Nettie worries about her younger brother, Anne's biological son, who's around 10 years younger than Nettie. He's too young to be on his own, and Nettie worries that if Anne goes to jail, no one will be there to look out for him. More than anything else, though, Nettie just wants to hear what Anne has to say for herself, an explanation for why she did what she did. Soon enough, Nettie gets her wish. Anne eventually makes a statement to the FBI and tells them her story. In 1987, she lost a pregnancy. It was the latest in a series of miscarriages, which left her deeply troubled. She was obsessed with having a baby, so she impersonated a nurse to gain entrance to the Harlem Hospital, took Carlina, and boarded a train to Connecticut to raise the baby as her own. Anne's story, as shocking as it is, is actually pretty textbook when it comes to infant hospital abductions, The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has identified several qualities that are common in these sorts of cases. Typically, the culprit is a woman who impersonates a medical provider to gain access to a hospital or care facility. As soon as the opportunity to abduct a child arises, she seizes it. Often, the kidnapper recently lost a child or pregnancy and goes on to raise the abductee as her own. She'll usually treat the child well because her goal is to be a mother, not a criminal. Anne's lawyers don't dispute that she committed the crime, but they do argue that she should receive leniency due to her mental health struggles and because she cared for and genuinely loved Nettie. In the end, the judge sentences Anne to 12 years, No one seems thrilled with the outcome. It's safe to assume Anne doesn't want to spend over a decade behind bars. And Carl tells the press that Anne took their daughter away for 23 years. In his eyes, the punishment should at least be as long as the crime. There's one person who doesn't give any statements, whose opinion never gets printed. Nettie herself. She didn't attend Anne's sentencing, and she hasn't returned to the public eye since that initial frenzy of interviews. Honestly, I can't blame her. She's had the shock of a lifetime, and had to cope with it under intense media scrutiny. She watched as journalists spun their own narratives about her. It's hard for anyone to make sense of their families and their role within them, even under the best circumstances add the complications of a kidnapping, a falsified identity, and old secrets becoming headline news, it has to be staggering. Dr. Jeffrey Greif of the University of Maryland School of Social Work says it's normal for abductees to struggle with these issues when they learn their true histories. They can have a hard time bonding with their biological families who are essentially strangers. And they have to reevaluate how they view the people who raised them, grappling with mixed feelings of love and betrayal. As Nettie put it in a 2011 interview with a local Atlanta radio station, it feels somewhat like you're in between two families. If there's any good to come out of this story, it's that Nettie can now rely on both of her families if she chooses to. The one she found and the one she feels close to even though they're not related by blood. Her biological family, who never gave up on their baby after decades. And the Petways, who assure Nettie she is still their cousin, niece, and sister, no matter what the DNA results say. In fact, they're glad she finally knows the truth. Her aunt Cassandra said, quote, Everybody was really happy for Nettie, and they told her, You found your family, but we'll still be your family also. Nettie is straddling two worlds, and that's even reflected in her name. She filed to have it legally changed to Carlina, but as of 2011, she still goes by Nettie in her day-to-day life. We can only hope this is a sign that she's embracing her true self, with the support of everyone she considers kin. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with another Cold Case. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Ryan O'Leary Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Angela Jorgensen edited by Karis Allen and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy.